With all the talk about safety, I came across this article and thought I should share how to stay safe in the world today. Now, this is more about accidents than any virus, but it says, number one, avoid riding in automobiles because they're responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents. But number two, do not stay home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Three, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Avoid traveling by air, rail, or water. I don't know what rail is. I think that's train. Uh, Because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. Of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in the hospitals. Above all else, avoid hospitals. You'll be pleased to learn that only 0.001% of all deaths occur in worship services in church. And these are usually related to previous uh, disorders. Therefore, logic tells us that the safest place you can possibly be at any given point in time is church. So for safety's sake, uh, attend church. It could save your life. But if you're listening online today, um, well, you only have a 17... Never mind. Um, We're in week three of our Taking Responsibility for Your Life series. And the question we ask every week is, am I taking responsibility for my life? Now, as I, as I talked two weeks ago and then last week, and, and this is a common theme, so it, I didn't want it to feel repetitive. So I just want to remind you of what we did each, each of the previous weeks. So week one, we learned that we are meant for responsibility. And we'll actually find fulfillment by being responsible. Uh, I think people talk about vacations and retirement. If I just get away from all this responsibility, then my life will be fulfilling. Um, that's, I don't think that's true. Then last week we looked at this, this idea of uh, reaping what we sow. Um, I, if, I, if I do something, there will be a consequence. Now, it was, it was directed internally. What I do will have an impact on my life, not talking about anyone else. But today we're going to expand on that a little bit. And so we're going to look into Joshua chapter 7. Now, a little backstory: The Israelites were uh, heading towards the promised land. And uh, they had come up uh, to Jericho and had really would have had no chance of winning, except for the fact that God was on their side. And so they won. Uh, they won that battle, and they continued to move forward. So then we come up to uh, the passage we're going to be in, Joshua 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. And it says this, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will go up, uh, will go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the, uh, to the ground before the, the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, 
Allah, sovereign Lord, why did you bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us to the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Now, I want to stop there. This isn't the main idea of the sermon, uh, but there is something that really stood out to me in this verse. I want to read it one more time. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. God offered them something good. He offered, he offered them the promised land, uh, freedom, uh, a, better land that they, that a better land than what they had. And what did they do? Uh, well, when things got rough, it was, well, why, why didn't we just settle for good? Why would we go towards something great and of God, a blessing from God, if we could just settle for what we already have? I think this is an attitude that we all have at times. We start to look at the now instead of looking ahead. But back to the story. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you, will you do for your own great name? He kind of tried to turn this. Like if, if God's people, us, if we're all destroyed then who will glorify you? Like he really cared uh, that, that God was being glorified there and not that they were going to be destroyed. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you, what are you doing down on your face? All right, just to spell this out, from the, at the beginning of the story, a man named Achan, he took things that he wasn't supposed to take. Uh, when they defeated Jericho, they were supposed to destroy everything, burn everything, don't take anything. Uh, well, Achan thought there's a couple nice things there, so he packed it away and, and hid it in his tent. Um, and and uh, um, he, he, know, he knew that he shouldn't, but he kept it a secret. All right, so they lose. And what, what happens? What does God say? Now, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to follow up. Stand up. That's, that's what God told him. Now, what does that really mean? I'm going to finish a couple more verses, and then I'm going to tell you what, what I think he's trying to tell these people. Verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted, are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So what did God tell Joshua to do? Well, what was he doing? He was face down with the elders, praying. And God said, stand up. Stop praying and fix the problem. I don't know if I ever thought I would uh, say, you know, when there's challenges to not pray. Um, but there's a reason for this. I think God is telling Joshua and the men um, that were in battle Stop trying to mask irresponsibility or flat-out disobedience with prayer. Take action. And I think, what does that mean for us today? Uh, well, are, are, you, are you praying for an answer that you already have received? 
Now, when we don't know, I think we should pray. I think in any situation we should pray, not just to get answers, but because of our relationship with God. But when God tells us to do something, and we know we're supposed to do it, or he tells us not to do something, like in this case, and they still did it, you don't need to go ask him what you're supposed to do. He already gave you the answer. And so, uh, is there something that you've read in the Bible, and you know it to be true, and Jesus said it, and I'm still going to pray because I don't like his answer? See, if the Bible tells you to be honest, and, and you know that being honest is what you're supposed to do in a tough situation, but you don't want to be honest because you don't like the consequences, well, then I wouldn't ask God. Uh, you, you're kind of trying to figure that out on your own and go against what he's told you to do already. Are you trying to pray yourself out of something that um, prayer didn't get you into it or into the situation? Irresponsibility did. Uh, you could apply this in all areas with relationships and finances and work. If you were irresponsible and got into a situation and you already know the way out is to start being responsible, well, you don't want to do that because it's going to take time. Because I would, I would rather be irresponsible and ask God to bless that so I don't have to be responsible and so I don't have to feel the consequences. Asking God to bless our irresponsibility makes no sense. In this situation, this is the difference between last week and this week. One guy, uh, Aiken, he ruined it for everyone. See, in this story, we see that a battle was lost and 36 men were killed because of one man's disobedience. See, last week it was we reap what we sow. Today is we reap what others sow. See, we feel the consequences. I, I think, I, I, I'm not going to finish the story, but, um, but I read on, and Achan and his family, his wife and his kids, were put to death once they found out what happened. And I thought, my first thought was, well, that's not fair. Why did the whole family suffer because of Achan. Why did the kids have to be put to death because of Achan? And, and then I think about today. Why do kids suffer because of their parents' irresponsibility? Why do we suffer because of our families at times, uh, or our friends, or our co-workers? It's not fair at all, but it happens. Kids suffer from their parents' poor decisions at times, and if a parent is responsible, um, there's a better chance that the kid won't have a negative um, impact or something that, that bothers them. Uh, and I know we, we might say, well, it's my life, so, well, yeah, that's true, it's your life, but there are consequences, and you're probably not just hurting yourself right now if you're being irresponsible. You're also hurting the people around you. And with others, um, like in this story, uh, we have to hold people accountable. See, that's the hardest thing, to hold people accountable uh, because it doesn't feel like the loving thing to do. Um, I, should I really question them or call them out for being irresponsible? Yes, you should. See, what does that look like? For a Christian, we already have the answer. In John 1, 14, the Word, or Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. A Christian can hold others accountable through grace and truth. And how you balance that is uh, it, it might be different depending on the, the person that you're talking to. If someone's just ignorant and they don't understand something, then you might want to be a little more gracious and, and teach them. Um, but if they're rebellious and disobedient and selfish, they probably need to hear more truth. See, uh, Jesus showed us some examples with the religious people. 
He, he went in, uh, they, were, they were making money off of God. They were, they were causing people to have to spend more money to try to have a relationship with God, and it wasn't right. So Jesus went in and flipped all the tables over and used a whip and drove them out. Uh, he, he probably used a little more truth there. But, but then he caught a, or talked to a, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and he offered her hope and life change, a little more grace. And to all people... In truth, he offers a new way for those who are being irresponsible, the ones who are hurting others, and, and also he offers hope for those who are feeling the consequences because someone else is making their life horrible. I want to finish with an excerpt from The Cross of Christ by John Stott as he explains Jesus offering this life change as well as hope. He says this, How does the cross of Jesus speak to the world of pain, poverty, and injustice? After explaining the full range of biblical ideas of the atonement, Stott concludes his book with a chapter entitled Suffering and Glory. He describes the miserable conditions of millions of people who live in the shanty towns of Africa and Asia, the slums of Latin America and of Brazil. Then he tells a story uh, about an imaginary poor man from the slums of Brazil who climbs 2,310 feet up the mountain to the colossal statue of Christ that towers above Rio de Janeiro. After the difficult climb, the poor man finally reaches Jesus and says this, I have climbed up to meet you, Christ, from from the filthy, confined quarters down there, to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in the slums of that splendid city, And you, do you remain here at Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory? Go down there to the slums. Don't stay away from us. Live among us and give us new faith in you and in the Father. Amen. Stott asks, what would Christ say in response to such an entreaty? Would would he not say, in the suffering of the cross, I did come down to live among you? And I still live among you. Then Stott adds, we have learned to climb the hill. We have to learn to climb the hill uh, called Calvary. And from that vantage ground, survey all life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Sometimes the picture of, of God lounging, perhaps dozing, in some celestial desk chair while the hungry millions starve to death. It is a terrible caricature of God which the cross smashes to smithereens. Jesus came to all of us irresponsible people. We are irresponsible. We're disobedient. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he offered us life and hope. He offered us change. And he offered it through his example when he came down and lived among us, as well as his sacrifice when he died for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for being who you are, uh, for, for uh, creating us, uh, for giving us the ability to love and to, to be loved, um, mostly in our relationship with you. Uh, but thank you so much that even in our shortcomings, in our disobedience, in our sin, you sent Jesus. And so I, I pray that we would consider our lives, our responsibilities, and, and, and look to other people and how we might impact someone both Uh, negatively and positively. Uh, We thank you that you chose to impact 
our eternal lives in a very positive way. And it's for that reason we worship you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.